to introduce. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. I am Joanne, and I'll be your host for this panel. Before I introduce the panelists, I have some housekeeping. Please note that in an unlikely case of fire, there are two emergency exits on both sides of the stage. If you hear an alarm, please make your way to your closest emergency exit. It would also be much appreciated if mobile phones can be put on the silent mode. Our first panel revolves around China's policies on climate change and how these policies may affect China's economic growth and development. Today, we are honored to have with us three esteemed speakers. Starting from my far left, the current China program manager at the International Energy Agency, Mr. Kevin Tu. Next, we have the Greater China Director of the Climate Group, Ms. Wu Changhua. And finally, we have the Chair of the Grantham Institute for Climate Change at Imperial College London, and the moderator of this panel, Sir Brian Hoskins. Please allow me to hand the stage over to Sir Brian Hoskins. Thank you very much indeed. So uh, welcome to this. We, we thought we might call this, as opposed to the other session, One Planet. Okay, so one planet, one system. <laughs> right, so um, I'm going to introduce the uh, discussion here, and uh, that's me, and uh, that's also me. So I'm just going to give you a few introductory slides to just make a context then for the other members of the panel to, uh, to take the discussion on. So I thought I would actually start with... Um, a couple of pictures of what has happened to the climate system and what might happen in future. And these are taken from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report a couple of years ago. And this is just one to remind us that the planet has warmed and it's warmed almost everywhere in in the last hundred years. And um, so China's on the right here, but you can see the colours here over the last century then southern China might have warmed somewhere near a half a degree, whereas northern China you might be up to nearer two or two and a half degrees. So the, uh, the warming through China is comparable with the rest of the um, continents um, increasing towards the northern pole. And the, the global warming during this period is about 0.8 of a degree, but that's because there's a lot of ocean, and it's usually more than that over land, and it has been over China. And at the same time, we've lost a lot of ice at the polar regions. Sea level has risen by about 20 centimetres. Heavy rainfall has increased in many places around the world, including in China. Of course, natural variability is there all the time, and much of the variability uh, between the uh, Yellow River Valley and the Yangtze is a sort of natural variability, but then there's climate change added on top of that. So the climate system is changing, but then what might happen in future? Well, if we don't do take the problem seriously, then this is what the, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said the changes would be by the end of the century. And remember, this is adding on to the, sort of the order of one or two degrees that we've already had. And this is, globally, this is about four degrees more but if you look over China, then it reflects what is going on elsewhere, and, and we're thinking of something like somewhere to three to maybe nine degrees across uh, a warming across China from the south to the north. So China would warm very considerably, as would the rest of the world that China trades with. And um, the sea level might rise by 
somewhere between half and one meter, probably during that period. And again, that would have impacts on many low-lying countries in the world and also delta regions in China and elsewhere. And uh, sea ice would be uh, disappearing, and maybe um, somewhere in the uh, middle of the century we would expect to see sea ice disappear in the northern polar region, but reform again in the winter. So the climate system would change very considerably. That's if we don't do much, um, and this is the contributor to that. Um, various countries and groups of countries around the world, this is the emissions of carbon dioxide from fossil fuel and cement production. Of course, there are other greenhouse gases and other ways of producing them, but this is the this is the predominant way that we have warmed the climate by adding these, the carbon dioxide from fossil fuels and cement, cement uh, production. And you can see then the United States at the bottom there and the European Union and other contributors and then uh, China in the uh, red bit in the middle there expanding its contribution and overtaking the U.S., in terms of that contribution rapidly from the year 2000 onwards. And clearly what happens in China is absolutely crucial to what happens in the world at this point. Now, uh, if we're going to actually tackle this climate change problem, as has been suggested and agreed in Paris, then this is the sort of thing that global emissions must do, at least this, because... Paris has said below 2 degrees, um, even thinking of 1.5, but this is more like the 2 degrees number. And on the left, then, we, this is not a uniform axis here. So we have historical emissions in blue of carbon dioxide um, and, or carbon dioxide equivalent, taking the other greenhouse gases. But then the orange ones are where we should be in 2025, 2030. There's a range, um, and then 2050. And if we take that 2050 level, for instance, um, then and you apportion that between the citizens of the world uh, that we expect to be around at that time, that means roughly uh, just over two tonnes of CO2 per person per year. And this is what we presently are then. Um, this is the per capita greenhouse gas emissions. So there's the US and Canada over 20 and Australia. Um, and the UK somewhere around eight, um, China somewhere around five to six, and you see the yellow colour there. But what we've got to be by 2050 is essentially the somewhere between the light green and the dark green. So we've got to be back to those levels. Even China has got to reduce a major amount by 2050 if we're going to achieve that sort of level. So that's that's the sort of background to the discussions then. Now, China did make commitments in the run-up to Paris, and I've just listed the, some of those here. Um, the the high-level one was that greenhouse gas emissions from China would peak by 2030, maybe before, um, and commit, commitments on renewables... Um, a large amount of the energy in China being produced by renewables by 2030 with lots of wind and lots of solar, um, strengthen research and development in low carbon and more efficient coal, which is very important in China, 
reforestation, build-up of a carbon trading system. There's a trading system in Europe and maybe building up one up in China and perhaps thinking of linking these together and set up a very significant climate fund. So these are some of the things that China was saying in the run-up to Paris. But I think I've said enough now, and I would like to hand over now to Chunghua Wu, who's going to take us on from this point. Sure, thank you. Uh, thank you, Sir Brian, and thank you all for being here. I was sitting in the room earlier before we started. I said, since Paris, actually, last month, this is the first time I feel like a minority, um, because in Paris and after Paris, actually, wherever I, I went, was a lot of, so many people interested in, actually, and the climate change issues, particularly China's position. But anyway, this is a classroom setting, so I'm honored to be here. Um, I was asked to address, uh, to look at the issue, to help you understand through three uh, particular angles. Uh, one is how has China tackling climate change issues, so I'm going to touch upon that. The second one, actually, is what's unique about China's policy or you know, actions. And the third angle will be look at the role of China, in particular, uh, to the Paris Agreement, actually, success uh, the process. So let me start in sort of 10 minutes' time. Let me start with the first one. Uh, the way China tackles climate change issues is not just a carbon-carbon issue, rather uh, it's a rather integrated way of thinking. So there are four major aspe aspects that uh, pretty much on top of the agenda in the current policy framework in China. One is a structure, uh, restructuring or structural change. Uh, that includes both the industrial and the economic economic structure. So that has already been happening. Uh, the second one is really looking into how to cap the overall energy consumption, particularly actually cap the consumption of coal. The third piece of the puzzle actually is really to capture the efficiency or productivity of the energy sector as much as possible. And the fourth piece of the puzzle, actually, is really to develop alternative energy as much as possible. So that's a sort of an integrated manner. So it's not just for the sake of environmental issues, but really, most importantly, how to address you know, this sort of uh, dilemma, dilemma, actually, between the growth and uh, environmental context there. Specifically, how do we do it? And uh, uh, so there are a few things to highlight. One, China does plan. And so we do planning, five-year planning. And the 13th one actually is coming up uh, in March. Uh, everyone actually is expecting that now. And uh, so we set targets for short term every five years. And so that's a sort of the cycle we do things. And uh, we started to, uh, the, 10 years ago, actually, 11th five-year plan, Chinese government started to set mandatory quantitative targets around efficiency, around intensity. It's more like around productivity, actually, of the energy consumption. So we set between 20, 2005 and 2010, the, the government set 20% energy intensity target over that five period of time. In the meantime, we also set targets around the renewable energy development, plus, actually, we also uh, set the forestry, uh, uh, the growth of the forestry coverage areas in China as well, which is part of addressing the carbon sink issues of the climate change issues there. The 11th five-year plan happened to be a very important period of time. So that was the first time we seriously put targets on the table and trying to deliver that. And it was a huge learning process. I think in that process, which was a bumpy, uh, partly because actually no one expected actually back in 2005 that there was 
you know, financial crisis, global financial crisis coming, and we didn't really know that at all. And uh, so when this, you know, financial crisis came, you had to do the stimulus, you had to rescue, so stimulus package. So China went through a rather bumpy period of time uh, during the 11th five-year plan, particularly the latter half of that, but uh, the country actually pulled well in terms of the set target. We set 20% energy intensity targets. We delivered 19.1%, which is not too bad at all, actually. Uh, but we did achieve also air pollution target there as well. We set a target on sulfur dioxide. We kept that already. We started to increase 10%. We over-delivered that as well. I said it's a learning, it's important, is that because of the learning, so the decision makers build upon that, gain a lot of confidence. So getting into the 12th five-year plan, which we just completed, actually, so we continue to set the targets, mandatory tar quantitative targets, so besides energy intensity target, because came along actually 2009, Copenhagen, so we started to also set carbon intensity target. So back then, actually, leading up to Copenhagen, we said, you know, by 2020, we're going to deliver carbon intensity target of 40, 40 to 45% over the 2005 level. So naturally, we build that actually into the national plan as well. So we said 17% actually in the 12th five-year plan. We pretty much delivered that actually in the last few years, last five years there. So we had energy intensity targets, carbon intensity targets, alternative energy uh, targets, renewables in particular. But also, you, during the 12th five-year plan, we also set percentage of the contribution to GDP from seven strategic emerging industries. That's sort of related to the first piece of the puzzle, which is the structural change. Uh, in order to you know, grow out of the heavy polluting, you know, heavy energy consuming sort of industries, we need we call clean tech in a sort of roughly manner to call that. So we set a percentage contribution target actually from those seven strategic emerging industries. Uh, we will see the, in March, we will see the Premier's report in terms of how we delivered actually uh, the 12th five-year plan. I think overall the expert uh, community has pretty much done roughly all kinds of assessment. I think I feel comfortably, confidently actually, I think we are definitely on that. The 10-year learning is very, very important, and uh, during that 10 period of, period of time, actually, a lot of things has happened. Uh, so the way more like looking into the second point, actually, how, you know, the uniqueness or whatever the policy context in China, there are a few things. One, China continues to demonstrate relatively strong, sort of top-down, sort of command and control and um, mechanism or governance, and that is why, actually, if the political leaders get it in China, they drive the agenda, and they integrate those sort of uh, targets agenda into the national policy, and that's building into the five-year plan, and we deliver them, right? The second way, actually, the decision makers also recognize is actually, it's not enough to just have the top-down part. So we started to really get more and more bottom-up elements built into the policy mechanism there as well, particularly actually opening up more to private sector and social forces, actually. For instance, China in the last few years opened up energy sector investment and also investment from private, from the market into some important pillar sectors actually in China in the, in the economy already. So that's very encouraging there as well. Thirdly, actually, and uh, we know command and control remains very, very important to addressing public goods issues like climate change, but that's not adequate. So we started to also to explore the market-based instruments. And uh, so during the 11th five-year plan, that was the period actually when, you know, 2008 to 2012, that was the five-year sort of compliance period for Kyoto Protocol. 
During that period of time, there was a mechanism called the CDM, uh, Clean Development Mechanism, as a part of the international mechanism. China quickly built up capacity for that particular sector to really tap into the you know, CDM market globally because through that we bring in capital, of course, and also international expertise to help us improve the energy efficiency, you know, reducing uh, emissions there as well. And then gradually getting into the 12th five-year plan, we roll out actually the seven piloting schemes of carbon markets in China, and they've all been uh, up and running since 2013. And of course, last year, the president said in New York, and basically said next year, 2017, we're going to roll out national carbon market. So everyone was waiting to see what's going to happen, but the, the, the the statement actually from the president was very, very clear. We probably would not be able to get into nationwide, economy-wide, everything actually in the carbon market, but rather we're going to focus on major industrial sectors, power sectors, iron and steel, ferrous metals, chemicals, cements, among others. Why those major sectors? Partly because starting in the 11th five-year plan, we've been already targeting them. And uh, you know, we set the targets already for those industrial sectors. We started to understand better in terms of inventories and the technology levels and the potential. So it's in a relatively good shape. So that, that, that lays a good foundation, actually, for the country to move into a national-level carbon trading platform. So we'll see that's going to happen. In the meantime, actually, financing becomes very, very important, uh, as Sir Brian mentioned already. Uh, so financing is key, actually, to deliver a lot of the commitment. So domestically, China definitely has been entering into a new stage of green finance, which is very, very encouraging. Very recently, uh, a month ago, and uh, the, the People's Bank of uh, China issued green bond regulation, which is new, grand new, getting into more financial products to really support the financing uh, the solutions in, in reality. In the meantime, actually, uh, China decided not to join Green Climate Fund at the international platform, uh, which was announced back in Lima, 20, uh, December 2014. We decided to go separately, called the South-South Collaboration. And last September in New York, the president committed 20 billion RMB uh, money, actually, to designate it to the Green Climate Fund, so creating another financial flow or financial platform to participate actually into international uh, sort of landscape in terms of uh, tackling climate change issues there as well. Another issue actually is really technology innovation, which is very, very key, even though people in my sector, we often say, you know, in order to address the climate change issues today, we pretty much have all the technologies available, most of the technologies available. But then the question will be, say, then why not? They haven't really played their role. There are a lot of issues, and the technology will continue actually to develop particularly in the case of China. China does not want to end up one day, like in order to address climate change issues and other environmental issues that China has to buy technologies from everyone else. So technology becomes a very important driver for the government actually to develop, enhances the capability there as well. So that's in a landscape. So the decision makers in China, in the policy landscape, we become more sophisticated actually. Rather than just command and control, rather we're bringing everyone together, including subnational government and the industrial sector, business and the society there as well. Paris. Um, Paris I, from where I stand, I see it as a success. I spent literally 10 days in Paris last month during the COP, literally since the beginning, from the beginning to the pretty much very end. And uh, you know, I don't want to drag on the process, the success. 
uh, I think actually the, the international community for the first time, particularly since Copenhagen, has agreed that you know, to address global challenges like climate change, it really requires global consensus and global partnership. I think we achieved that actually in Paris, you know, particularly reflected in the Paris Agreement. A lot of people asked about the role of China, including here I'm trying to address that as well. The way I look at it, China definitely uh, decided actually to play a more constructive role to the international process, particularly around the climate change. The way the leaders see it, actually, it's more like as a part of the efforts for China to participate more and more so, actually, in the global governance mechanism. So climate change agreement negotiation is one of the cases that China is delivering. It's a sort of an ambition there as well. China's support effort started about more than a year ago, November 2014, at, at the APEC summit in Beijing, you know, President Xi, President Obama joint announcement literally started the process that the two biggest countries' economies or largest emitters decided to join hand to support. And that's, that started the process uh, over the period of 2015, you know, the September more bilateral between China and the U.S., China, French, China and other developing countries. Pretty much the tone is, was very, very positive. See, we need to somehow really make commitments and support the success of a Paris Agreement, and that was sort of delivered in the process. And a lot of people challenging about to say, yes, we probably compromised everything, make sure we all accepted, so whatever the language in the Paris Agreement, um, we said all the correct things, but you read carefully what's in there. A lot of people are not very happy about it. Particularly, I heard a lot of complaints about it, say, you know, China, U.S. are not really committing anything at all, you know, in, in the Paris Agreement at all. I think the majority of the international community interpreted it a little bit differently. If you look at this sort of glass, it's a half full, half empty. I, I'm standing on the half full side because I think that's a good foundation as a starting point, actually, for the international community to work together. That is why, as reflected in the Paris Agreement, basically, we probably do not know enough at this moment rather than committing everything very solid with the exact numbers. Let's give us some, some, some time, actually. That's why the sort of you know, review process every five years, you know, stock taking, that sort of mechanism, all built into the Paris Agreement. I think China supported pretty much that process. Part of the reason why China was so open in the end, particularly on the review process, compared to Copenhagen, we didn't really know much back in Copenhagen. So the, the mentality, the tone actually compared Copenhagen and Paris was very, very different. No one expected actually, since Copenhagen, renewable energy technology could have developed so quickly and the cost could be dropping so fast that we could deploy, install more. And we didn't really have enough confidence back in Copenhagen time. But now there's a dramatic shift of the tone and mentality in the international community, particular leading economies, actually. This is, becomes a new opportunity to compete and so that you could innovate. And together, we're in cr creating a much, much larger pie so that we're all going to win, actually, bigger piece of the pie, of the pie rather than zero-sum sort of the games there. I think I'm at time, probably finishing up, and I will be happy to entertain more uh, Q&A questions and discussions, so thank you for that. Thank you very much indeed, and yes, I can hand that across now, <laughs> so it's the right-hand one. Okay, thank and so, so Kevin, too, is going to uh, jangle, if I can try to do it, um, is go now going to take us further on the energy front. Uh, thank you very much, yeah. 
for your kind introduction, and uh, it's a great honor for me to be invited to speak here today. Uh, I worked for the International Energy Agency uh, uh, for more than 40 years. Uh, we are considered as a rich man's energy club because our members are all OECD countries. Uh, but currently, uh, we have made a significant uh, progress in terms of engaging key emerging economies. China has joined the IEA as our association country in November last year, along with Indonesia and Thailand. Currently, we're in discussion with the National Energy Administration in Beijing for the option of establishing an IEA China Energy Cooperation Center in Beijing by the end of the year. If our initiative could be materialized uh, in the end, uh, then this will open job opportunities uh, for many uh, who are interested. Hopefully some <laughs> of you here will work for us in the session. <laughs> now I'd like to talk about uh, Copen21. Uh, I was uh, in Copenhagen more than six years ago. Back then, it's uh, very chaotic. So personally, I consider COP21 in Paris as a success. Uh, I think there are two uh, uh, important reasons be behind that. The first one, uh, the because of the French presidency. The second one is because uh, China and the United States are willing to collaborate with each other instead of uh, going to a confrontational mood uh, before COP21. Uh, if we uh, look at uh, the ambition, uh, many uh, actually in the climate uh, community didn't expect that uh, uh, 1.5 degree uh, scenario will be uh, mentioned in the final text. So I, I would say the ambition is much higher than uh, what I personally expected before. In terms of Chinese commitment, I would like to highlight a few bonus. The first one, China committed to peak its national carbon emissions around 2030, not by. There's some different uh, difference in this regard. The second one is uh, the emission uh, intensity target, which is consistent uh, with uh, uh, the previous commitment uh, made in Copenhagen. And the third one is 20% of non-fossil fuel uh, commitment, uh, which also including nuclear energy. Let's look at uh, uh, the zero ambitions uh, we are uh, mentioning today. If we look at all the uh, commitment, uh, the so-called INDC made by different countries, Probably we are still quite far away from uh, uh, from the two degree scenario, which also is the four hundred fifty ppm scenario uh, in our uh, World Energy Outlook uh, um, report. So, at the International Energy Agency, uh, we do have a so-called bridging scenario if the national government can follow our recommendation on energy efficiency reduce the inefficient coal-fired power generation, renewable investment, upstream methane emissions reduction, and fossil fuel subsidy reform. 
many uh, of these had been uh, addressed by uh, national governments in different parts of the world, we do believe uh, we can move uh, much closer to meet a two-degree target. However, if we look at uh, how the burden needs to be uh, shouldered by different national governments, uh, although China accounts for around 30% of global carbon emissions, but if you look at uh, Chinese status, China still considers it as an emerging economy or a developing country. How could a developing country show the, the most part of the emissions reduction obligation? So this is the question. Uh, the international community and also the Chinese government itself need to figure out. Having said that, I do believe there's other incentive other than climate change that will driven China's uh, energy transitions in the years to come. If we look at news reports, uh, it's quite common these days to, uh, to hear about the bad air qualities in uh, China. However, I would like to remind everyone in this room, this is not a China unique uh, phenomenon. In the past, many uh, OECD countries, including UK, uh, encountered a similar uh, environmental problem before, and also this is an ongoing phenomenon in many parts of the emerging world, uh, such as India, and even in some part of uh, the developed world. I lived in Paris now, however, in some part uh, uh, of Paris during some part of the year, we also have some serious uh, air quality problems. If we look at where China's uh, PM 2.5 emissions are from, certainly we can easily see uh, coal combustion certainly is the most uh, important driving force behind uh, China's uh, uh, heavy smoke. If we, we take uh, Beijing as an example, uh, the increasingly higher number of personal vehicles uh, is important uh, for the solution of this uh, uh, environmental uh, problem. And also, if you look at uh, the, the share um, of PM2.5 emissions from the adjacent region, which means the neighboring region uh, surrounding Beijing is uh, near 25%, which means when we look uh, at air pollution issues, you cannot deal with this uh, challenging uh, by one province, by one city. Uh, you have to deal with uh, it from a regional and a national uh, perspective. When we talk about uh, energy and environmental challenges in China, uh, we often mention about uh, the fragmented governance structure uh, in the Chinese system. For instance, uh, the energy policy is taken care of by National Energy Administration, which is part of NDRC. NDRC is in charge of climate change. And the uh, Environmental Protection Ministry uh, is responsible for uh, air quality-related issue. However, I would like to argue today that uh, this actually is not a uh, unique uh, phenomenon uh, in China. If we look at uh, the United States uh, as uh, an example, if we look at energy policy agenda setting in U.S., it's also fragmented among many ministries in the U.S. 
And uh, compelled with the United States, I would also like to argue uh, the both the NDRC and uh, the National Energy Administration are uh, quite powerful government agencies. So then the question is why we still face so many uh, challenges in China. I, I would say the most uh, weakest link of China's energy and environmental governance actually is enforcement of the regulation instead of the regulation process itself. If we look at uh, um, uh, one issue that's frequently discussed by the energy community recently, is whether the Chinese coal consumption has already peaked. Uh, IEA recently uh, issued a, a report because of the gradual economic um, restructuring and uh, the strong growth in no carbon source of power uh, in China, we at IEA tentatively concluded that uh, coal consumption in China has already peaked. However, I would like to caution everyone in this room. Uh, our assessment uh, comes with greater uncertainties. Many who um, focus on China's energy sector may uh, be alarmed by the recent revision of national coal energy balance table by the National Bureau of Statistics the revision uh, has been quite substantial. So as a result, because of the uncertainty associated with uh, um, the statistic itself and uh, the uncertainty associated with the economic trajectory of China's uh, energy sector, I, I would say the peaking of Chinese coal consumption is only a con very tentative conclusion made by the International Energy Agency. If we look at uh, the recent no oil price, what's the implication uh, for the energy and the environmental agenda in China? Um, currently, uh, the policy drivers remain quite strong to promote renewable development and no, no carbon economy in China. However, if the price of oil are kept very low for prolonged period of time, uh, this certain certainly will have negative benefits on um, no-carbon uh, development in China. This uh, is a challenge uh, which needs to be addressed not only by China, but uh, many part of uh, the international community. Natural gas, although it's uh, one sort of fossil fuel, it's uh, widely considered as a bridging fuel uh, between what we are uh, now and uh, what we need to be achieved uh, in terms of no carbon uh, development. However, recently even gas consumption in China uh, has uh, slowed down uh, quite a bit. Uh, this year's, uh, uh, last year's uh, uh, growth rate is only a single digit. Uh, this is the lowest uh, uh, in many years. So we still need to look at how to reform China's uh, uh, oil and gas sector in order to promote uh, gas development, including unconventional, uh, in the years to come. Now I'd like to uh, talk about uh, two additional topics. One is the nuclear development in China. Uh, before Fukushima, China has uh, the most ambitious uh, nuclear development uh, target in the world. However, 
after that, uh, uh, China drastically uh, upgraded uh, the safety standard of uh, nuclear uh, projects. Now only the so-called uh, uh, third-generation nuclear power plants could be built in China. However, you, if we look at uh, the existing technology, no matter it's uh, AP1000, AP1400, uh, Huanong, or EPR, it's they are all not uh, internally mature technology. They are still need more time to prove uh, its uh, uh, cost effectiveness and also its um, uh, carbon uh, um, carbon abatement potential in uh, China. Another issue, of course, is renewable. Uh, because of time constraints, I would like to direct. Uh, directly go to the last slide. Uh, in terms of uh, the take-home message, uh, I would like to emphasize uh, uh, two points. You know. The first one, enforcement of the regulation itself is much more important uh, compared with the regulation process itself. Uh, if uh, the Chinese government uh, can be more serious about uh, enforcement of regulation, uh, I would say the no carbon development uh, potential in China can be uh, tapped in a better manner. The second issue is uh, serious uh, energy sector reform is a prerequisite for China to tap its uh, full potential in terms of uh, no carbon development. We have talked uh, uh, quite uh, well for energy sector reform. Sometimes it's termed as the energy revolution, but if you do not unfold the scheme in an appropriate and a timely manner, the window of opportunity uh, might be closed. Thank you very much. So we'd like to uh, move on to a little discussion be between us up here before we go to a, a Q&A for, um, for you to all ask your questions. But um, let's just think about the role of China in the Paris negotiations, which you, you certainly uh, mentioned, Shanghai. Um, I suppose, giving my background, I mean, I've, over the years I've given a lot of talks about what we're doing in the UK, and often I've had this question, well, is it worth us doing anything because China's building all these coal power stations and we're 2% of global emissions, so why bother? And I actually have given for many years that I think China might be uh, an increasing part of the problem, but that China might be a major part of the solution. And I think I saw that actually happening very much this time in the run-up to Paris. Uh, in particular, a very important moment when the US and Chinese leaders actually gave very significant pledges for what they were saying in the run-up to Paris. So I think that was back in September, was it? Probably... September. Yes. So uh, that was a very important moment for me, but perhaps we can just... How important do you think it really was, the Chinese move here? And you've already said something about that, Chenghua. Thank you, Brian. I, I think, actually, uh, the international community compared to Copenhagen uh, this, this round, actually, fully recognized, more and more, actually recognizes the importance of China and the U.S. in addressing global climate change issues there. Uh, to be fair, I think the two big nations' leaders managed to do so, uh, even maybe symbolically, whatever. So there is very strong positive, actually, recognition or contribution to that process. Um, 
as some of the numbers, you know, slides showed already. Uh, seriously, if China does not uh, take enough actions within the time frame we said already, uh, there's no way we're going to address the global climate challenges. Uh, so it's not like uh, you know I just feel China important as a Chinese, but rather seriously, you know, addressing climate change issues. China is so important, and we all recognize that. And very encouragingly, Chinese leaders taking that also very seriously. So that's one side. There is the other side, though. And uh, particularly looking into the details over the years, actually as a professional participating into the international process and the politics, geopolitics in that, one sort of uh, uh, sort of uh, a little bit negative part and argument basically saying there are people saying China, whatever China is behaving, there are always people critical of China, basically saying actually, you know, you have U.S. on this side. Then you have India on this side. You're in a very comfortable situation. To a certain extent, and that might be true. If you look at the U.S., so in the near term, you know, with the U.S. actually election uh, in the process, to what extent actually, particularly now, now we have the Paris Agreement, and uh, that's going to be ready for signature starting April this year, and leading, you know, within a year time. So basically, saying, you know, we want all the country to put their signatures on it. Seriously, you are really on it, rather than just said, cheered up actually in Paris. Uh, that remains a lot of uncertainty uh, at this moment. So whoever will become next U.S. president, to what extent actually the new president will be really immediately on board address climate change issues, that remains a huge question mark. So to that extent, people feel like, yeah, whatever, U.S. won't really move too much. So China feel like, oh, you look at the U.S., right? You have a reference on this side. On the other side is really India. I think uh, in the Paris process, actually, Indian faces a very difficult, different situation compared to China. In large extent, they feel like they, they lag at least 10 years behind China. And uh, there is a sort of equity issue, fairness issue. And uh, you know, we are a developing country. India remains even more developing country at this moment. And uh, so you cannot just you know, ask us to do too much at this moment. And uh, so even on the spot in Paris, India definitely struggled a little bit, actually, even though everyone in the end pulled out nicely, but in the process, actually. So in China had India on this side, which, which more like regarded as a dragging, actually, the process. So China, this is a second element to look at. China is sort of in a comfortable situation, right? And you have U.S. and India. So whatever you do, you try to speak positively. You committed already, whatever. So that's a comfortable sort of situation. The third element is more like the driver. Why? Is, is it China really serious about addressing this issue? Uh, absolutely, yes. Uh, it's not just for the sake of just the climate change issue itself. And so we do have the international global challenge, but domestically, as Kevin mentioned already, really we struggle with domestic environmental issues there as well. So particular air visible challenges like smog issues there. I live in Beijing. You could imagine, actually, the life I've been through, actually, and on a regular basis, you know, your basically your your mind uh, set actually ups and downs depending, you know, whether the wind blows or you know whether, how blue the sky is. That's tough. That's really tough. So what that implies, basically, for China today to grow the economy, the costs have become so high on two fronts. One is economic cost, right? Of course, energy, of course, there. Why we you know coal is cheap today, so there is economic cost issue there in the whole landscape there. The other one is really the social cost, the people, 
people do not like that anymore, right? And they demand for much better, improved actually environmental quality. And so from that end, actually, so this is sort of a two drivers, you know, international front and domestic. So Chinese decision makers are really, really seriously about addressing these issues. It's not, as I said, it's not just totally for the sake of, you know, environmental or climate change issues there. There is a very important side of it, which I sort of mentioned, is really how China is, sees itself in the future global economic market. It's a competitiveness issue. Uh, so very exciting part of you know how the picture has unfolded actually during Paris and of course afterwards in the coming decades there is really the consensus of the large economies, particularly G20. If you say they are the largest economies, they started they decided to come together to leave I call it like a clean revolution. So rather than being stuck in the conventional sort of virtuous cycle, now we're you know after Paris, we're lifting up to the new sort of ground of the game. Basically, energy has to be clean, has to be efficient. We had to address the carbon issues. We had to address, of course, domestic issues like pollution there as well. So the mindset of the large economies, particularly including China there as well, is really it's grow differently, right? So it, it turned out as a burden sharing, that sort of have to my obligation, rather turn out into yeah, this is how I'm going to compete, actually. And uh, there are experts basically saying, say, okay, just look at the solutions of the climate change issues. Look at the technology. There are probably six countries who are really going to be winner, and China is one of the six. So the mindset actually becomes very, very different compared to Copenhagen back then. It's like a year, you know, burden, obligations, responsibilities. Now, actually, this round is totally, say, dynamic, very actively pursuing different, actually, sort of de development. Very important is we need to compete. You need to enhance your competitiveness issue, and China is totally in it. Thank you. Kevin, do you want to... Uh, uh, yes, I would also like to uh, frame this the issue uh, from three items. The first one is uh, Copenhagen. If you look at uh, what happened after Copenhagen, uh, let's put it in a polite way. The Chinese government realized it didn't uh, gain anything out of the process, so uh, the position on international climate negotiation um, have softened a lot thereafter. The second issue is because the um, bilateral relationship between the United States and China has become uh, much more complicated over time. U.S. as the established power, China as the the emerging power, um, both sides have very strong incentive uh, to handle the bilateral relationship appropriately. But if you look at uh, different topics, uh, both countries are interested, energy actually and uh, climate change issues, uh, I, I would argue um, um, uh, some uh, quite few uh, topics, uh, both sides uh, can can tackle this issue towards a um, pretty positive uh, uh, direction. So that's uh, the second reason. The third one, I agree with uh, Tanghua, air pollution uh, is uh, very important uh, in this uh, um, debate because uh, uh, from the political perspective, uh, domestic uh, air pollution actually is much more urgent and much more important to uh, the Chinese decision makers compared with uh, 
international economic uh, negotiation agenda. However, if we look at uh, both uh, air pollution and uh, climate change issue, there's synergy. The uh, largest one is that no matter whether you are interested in climate change or uh, air pollution, you need to deal with uh, China's heavy reliance on coal consumption. China's uh, proactive attitude, the cooperative attitude uh, ahead of COPEN21, uh, I personally think this is the way to use the international commitment to pressurize domestic reform to move domestic energy and the environmental agenda forward. Thank you. Can okay. I just uh, so yeah, sure. add the fourth element, actually, you sort of mentioned earlier on. Uh, this is also this generation of political leaders in China to look at the global China's role in the global governance, which I sort of mentioned early on, and it's a very serious one. And November 30th, actually last year, the first day of COP, and so 150 heads of states, you know, spoke, and actually that day, including Chinese President Xi Jinping, for the first time, actually he articulated to the international community China's view of how you know the global government should be established and particularly emphasizing China's role in it. So this is sort of a China sort of global strategy. It's a bigger picture. This is only one piece of the puzzle, actually. So there's a bigger contest of the political leader, Chinese political leader's view or vision of the global governance, and they had to handle, actually, COP, you know, Paris process very carefully, very diplomatically, and very successfully. Thank you. I don't think we've mentioned security of supply of energy as being a driver for China as well. Do you think that's...? It has been. I mean, it, energy security has always been. But I think, you know, Kevin probably, you know, from the you know, IEA perspective, can be all more like the expert on the energy side. Uh, yes, that, that has been and remains so. But I th to certain extent, actually, less and less talked about it. There's an overall energy strategy. Coal, of course, we have lots of coal. That's part of the reason. We do not have lots of enough oil or gas. Of course, we have to rely on, actually, uh, imports, whatever. That creates huge security challenges, risks for China. But in the meantime, if you look at uh, how China hand has handled that, actually, uh, you know, President, Chinese president was in the Middle East, Iran, whatever. And uh, so th there's always this sort of energy Mm. sort of linkage there because it's very, very clear. And there is a energy security issue and there is a cost issue actually there as well. So China has to rely on the international market actually to supply at least a part of the you know, energy uh, to China. That has been an issue. I think will continue to be part of it. Uh, energy security also uh, should be part of the consideration. If we look at uh, the energy value chain, uh, the production part of the ch and the transportation part are pretty vulnerable to extreme uh, climate change scenario. Uh, uh, either you need to um, adapt uh, to uh, climate change or you do something uh, proactively to avoid such undesirable scenario uh, to occur in uh, the future. So uh, that's why I think uh, uh, China uh, is looking at this issue from uh, uh, two perspectives. Uh, the first one is by participating in international energy governance, uh, by working more with existing international energy governance body mm -hmm. to address its uh, rising energy security challenge. Uh, of course, uh, uh, climate change uh, and uh, the COP21 can also be uh, part uh, of the overarching picture here. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. That's, uh, I th- Chung Hawao, you've mentioned um, India on one side and the US on the other. If we're looking at China, it's, it's, it's difficult to know which context we look, but just how challenging do you think the, the pledges are already made for, in Paris or before Paris compared with, say, the EU or the US? Um, and it is a difficult comparison because we're looking at a, a strongly developing country still compared with the industrialised. But um, do, you th- do you think that these are really challenging uh, commitments that China's made? Uh, the, an- the short answer is a yes. I think, actually, uh, you know, uh, you cannot easily or simply compare the level of difficulties. Yeah. So I wouldn't really go towards that. Yes. Uh, I don't think you could compare the two, say, you know, it's easy for you, it's not easy for me. No, I don't. I think we are operating. It's, it is a global challenge, but when it comes down to specific targets, whatever, it's more like delivered within your jurisdiction. Um, a couple of points to look at. One, uh, I don't think that's going to be easy targets. And uh, the second one, actually, I don't think that's, not, that's the target that we cannot possibly reach at all. So it's a target set based upon all kinds of scenarios and analysis, assessments. Uh, if, I don't think it's going to be to the very aggressive part. Uh, I don't think it's a very conservative part. It's somewhere in the middle, probably a little bit towards the more ambitious part. Basically, that's the way I look at uh, at this moment. Um, Enforcement, implementation and becomes so critical in China. And at this moment, I feel confident, and uh, particularly from the political leaders' commitment and from all the drivers actually coming together. And uh, uh, so I think I feel confident that China should be on the right track. I mentioned actually there's a five-year plan and everything. And uh, so we started, if 10 years ago you asked me this question, I wouldn't really know much. I just, uh, I don't know. We never tried that before. But now actually we have 10-year experience already. That's a very important learning process. That's also a confidence building up process there as well. In the meantime, actually, if you look at the technology progress, as I mentioned, like solar and others, China getting more and more sort of familiar so we're getting stronger in that landscape. So that helps hugely in terms of we could set more ambitious targets and really seriously delivering that. In order to deliver that, as I mentioned earlier, this is not simply I set the targets, I just deliver the targets. This for China at this moment is literally transforming your economy, your industrial you know, sort of structure at this moment. Is it easy? No, I don't think so. I think this is an overhaul of everything, actually. You cannot disrupt this large country. You cannot just stop everything here, then just shift it towards the other side. So this is sort of transitional period towards a brand new, cleaner, whatever future. So you could imagine, actually, how difficult this, this is and this will be. But somehow, as I said, I think the track record in the last 10 years in particular gives people the confidence that you know, we're really serious about it because all the drivers coming together, moving towards one direction, there's only one direction. It's not like, okay, this is one, then probably I could go there as well or the other way. No, this is the only direction, actually, the vision set very, very clearly. So the consensus there is very, very importantly. In the meantime, I think the decision makers in China are also getting more experienced in terms of policy tools and also more holistic. Holistic in a way, I say, you know, we do not just set percentage of the, tar- you know, emission targets, whatever. Rather, we also set the targets, mandatory quantitative targets, how we grow 
our industrial sectors, clean technology sectors, uh, energy, of course, there as well, efficiency, whatever. So it's a very complicated, sophisticated landscape, actually. The decision makers are more good at getting more and more good at, including market-based instruments. So that also offers you the confidence that we have tools, you know, we have instruments, and the decision makers, people making decisions, actually, understand it much, much better. That is why I said it's really recreated, started you know, the process already, recreating a new landscape or ecosystems in terms of enabling you know, the country moving towards the one direction we want to pursue. So from that end, I think I, think I also feel confident. Again, back to the question, I cannot answer, say, yeah, I also say, compared to U.S., I say, no, I, cannot I cannot compare, right? And uh, we all have our difficulties. But in the meantime, China is not just uniquely, uniquely, totally different. As Kevin mentioned in this presentation earlier on, you know, there are a lot of issues that's common. You know, for instance, in the EU, you know, you have ETS. You had a lot of resistance from industrial sectors because they complain about the cost, what are competitiveness issues, and you would imagine Chinese business just totally say whatever the government said, they'll go along. No, right? And the business is business. Market economy is market economy. Cost is a big issue, universal. It's more like this is sort of a check and balance and trying to figure out, you know, fighting with each other. But comparatively speaking, having a strong national government, political leadership or governance mechanism helps hugely in this particular case so that you know, the strong leaders at the top level will be able to somehow create an ecosystem to make sure, if not everyone actually, the majority of the business community and the society, subnational government actually to come along. And that is what we're seeing now more and more so in China today. Okay, thank you. Kevin? Uh, I agree with Tsanghua. It's uh, difficult to make such a comparison between the climate ambition uh, of the United States and China. If we look at the United States, uh, its commitment is between the period of 2005 and 2025. Uh, but for China, it's 2030. We're even not talking about uh, <laughs> the, the same year. In addition, uh, in the U U.S. is an uh, absolute uh, emissions reduction. Uh, U.S. has uh, quite transparent uh, energy uh, statistics. It's relatively easy to assess whether it's uh, very easy or difficult for U.S. to meet its climate uh, target. Then it's uh, much better uh, understandable uh, whether it's uh, the um, market-driven shale gas revolution war uh, the government-driven uh, policy change uh, uh, need to uh, the desired outcome committed by the U.S. government. But uh, if we look at uh, uh, China's commitment is to peak its national emissions around 2030. So there's uncertainty in terms of when exactly the emissions will peak. Uh, there's the biggest question mark at what level. Uh, without knowing much about uh, the absolute level uh, um, of uh, emissions uh, committed by the Chinese government, uh, I don't believe uh, any agency could actually um, assess whether it's uh, uh, ambitious enough. Having said that, uh, we also need to um, uh, notice that uh, the willingness to make a commitment to peak its national emission is a drastic uh, departure of China's uh, existing 
old school thinking of positioning itself as a developing country. Mm -hmm. So in this regard, I, I, I would say um, the political leader in China uh, has been uh, brave enough to move the agenda forward. Thank you. I think that's a suitable point now to come to the Q&A where, so uh, if you would like to raise your hands and I can already say I think the first, perhaps we'll take uh, a two, we'll take three, okay, so uh, yes, the first one there. Uh, do you need a microphone, I think, then? That would probably be good, actually, so everyone can see you. Uh, hi, good morning, distinguished panel. Uh, my name is Bi Xuan. I'm an LSE alumni. Um, thank you very much for this very encouraging talk. As a Chinese, I was very surprised how much we actually achieved, given the difficulty in implementation that we are all aware. So um, I have firstly a question for Ms. Wu. Uh, you meant, uh, I would like, could you give some more color on what political tools have worked particularly well in the past 10 years um, to achieve these um, targets? In and China? In China, yes. Um, and also, you mentioned that alternative energy investing has played an important role um, in achieving this target. Could you just give us some more detail on this account and how would the alternative energy strategy look like uh, going forward and what's the investment scale? Um, and then mm -hmm. I just have... We're going to get three and one here, are we? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I have my... I think everyone else was restricted to one, okay? Well, oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, my last question is to Mr. Tu. So you mentioned the difficulties in um, implementation. Could you just tell us a bit more on the coordination of this policy implementation process? Because I studied cement, steel, and al alumni uh, industry in China, and I mean even with those headlines of reducing overcapacity, the new added uh, capacity in the steel industry will be 7% of the global steel output for the next two years. Okay, right, fine, thank you. Uh, right, okay, um, yes, right, so you don't have a fourth one, I know. <laughs> thank you, sorry. Okay, actually, perhaps, is there someone with a question for Kevin then? And, um, yep, okay, at the back there, yeah. Yep. You can just shout, you don't have to wait. Yeah. Well, I, I'm told that they may be recording. And Are is they that, recording? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right, if you want your words immortalized. Yeah, okay, fine. Right, okay. Thanks. Uh, I'm Chris. Uh, I'm a fellow at the Oxford Martin School in Oxford. Uh, and, uh, Mr. Tu, I was really fascinated by the slide that you put that showed the different bureaucratic units that are involved in implementation. And I guess following on question number three, if you could just talk briefly about the different roles and responsibilities of the NDRC, of National Energy Commission, and the agency, um, just to help us understand a bit more how the bureaucracy functions. Okay, thanks very much. Right, Yeah, sure. The question about the p policy tools that I worked, um, there are many, actually, and uh, one of them just give you an example, and uh, I, I talked about the targets, mandatory targets. So, firstly, 20% energy intensity targets between 2006 and 2010. We set the national target, then we break it down and allocate that to subnational government level and also to major companies. So it's a contract 
sort of between the national government and the local government, and also between the national government and those, you know, CEOs actually of these large companies there as well. Um, this is a typical sort of top-down sort of a solution. But as I said, in the current context, actually that works because no one can force local governments, the decision makers, governors, or mayors actually to take on mandatory targets like that. That's why it still requires you know, the mechanism that works in China and also for large state-owned companies there. So far, it has worked. Uh, in, if you look at this according to official statistics, so we're pretty much on the track in terms of delivering those targets and for, on both the local government side and also on the large industrial side there as well. Getting into um, this, two examples, two major pieces of legislation actually probably as a sort of a deeper dive. Uh, a year ago, so January the 1st, 2015, uh, the newly amended environmental law became effective. And uh, that day actually I was at CCTV uh, studio live commenting on that piece of information that when it became effective. The way I look at it. Really, it probably could be called the first environmental legislation that really has some teeth in it, right? And in it, basically, there's a couple of major sort of highlights. One, the financial penalties are much, much higher. So compared to before, you know, a lot of companies really, they had to seriously look at this issue. Secondly, it's really even criminal charges, actually, against the polluters and even local decision makers in cases, whatever. So since then, and uh, in the last year, if you look at the number of cases to the courts related to environmental pollutions have been really stockpiling, there are many, many of them, more and more so. That was really progress moving forward. It's, you know, a major piece of legislation started to play its role. So that's the sort of deeper, so top-down law, whatever. The second piece of legislation, January 1st of this year, 2016, the air pollution prevention and control law became effective. And again, I was also at CCTV studio commenting on that that day. If you look at this, and we're, this is related to both air pollution and also uh, you know, greenhouse gases emissions here, it was really, really serious. And, uh, and as, again, actually built upon finally the, the, the sort of environmental protection law with the teeth, this is much, much higher, more restrictive there as well. And in it, one uniqueness about this sort of arrangement is something we debated actually a lot in the last few years, in a couple of years in China, it's something called appointment. So you do not find it anywhere else. Basically, if a local decision makers are held accountable for environmental quality of your jurisdiction, if you fail, you will be requested for an appointment with higher level government agencies. This is not just a pleasant appointment, actually. So you have to go through, see why you have failed. And more importantly, actually, you need to work out a very specific timeline and efforts, actually, in terms of delivering the targets there. So from that end, actually, that definitely, we started to see more effectiveness in terms of enforcement and implementations there. Alternative energy investment, I think there, this is so much uh, you know, uh, out there already. China has been leading in terms of both investing in renewable energies and also in terms of installations. Solar wind, I do not have all the numbers popping in my head. Probably Kevin has more numbers. It's already a great success. And also leadership. I think a part of the story is actually say why the international community started to have more confidence is because of China's contribution to renewable energy sector 
by you know manufacturing, industrializing, and also reducing the cost, so that the global community will be able to speed up the process to really scale up of re- renewable energy as a big contributor to the solution. Kevin, perhaps resist that one if you can, but can you deal with this one? Yes. Uh, deal with this one first. Okay. So on the top of the diagram, uh, it's the state council. Currently, uh, Chinese uh, vice premier, Mr. Zhang Gaoli, is in charge of uh, the energy issues uh, from the top level. If we look at the National Energy Commission, uh, it now should still be chaired by Chinese uh, premier, but uh, it's not so active. Uh, and uh, the secretariat of the National Energy Commission uh, at the National Energy Administration. National Energy Administration, NEA, uh, is uh, the regulator of China's uh, energy sector, which itself is a deputy ministerial level uh, agency under the most powerful domestic uh, uh, ministry in China, uh, the National Development C- Reform Commission, uh, NDRC. In the past, climate change um, responsibility was handled by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in China. The reason why the negotiation responsibility was transferred from MOFA to NDRC is because uh, uh, State Council considered that uh, NDRC is the most powerful domestic agency. It's the only agency with the options to enforce uh, the international commitment uh, at uh, uh, from a domestic uh, perspective. So uh, that's the reason for the transfer of the uh, responsibility. Uh, in the past, uh, the former um, Chinese uh, minis- Minister of Environment uh, once mentioned, I'm in charge of carbon monoxide, not carbon dioxide, which is the status quo in China uh, for now. Uh, Ministry of Environment Protection only deal with uh, um, local uh, environmental issues instead of the global environmental issues such as uh, climate change. And uh, of course there are many uh, more agencies uh, that actually are involved uh, in uh, this process. These are only a few listed here and uh, the Department of Climate Change on the NDRC uh, is the one actually directly deal with uh, both uh, uh, the international climate negotiation and also the enforcement, uh, or trying to enforce uh, those commitments at a domestic uh, level. Uh, now I'd like to talk about... Um, okay. um, it's I would like to get some more questions, so if you could make it very short on this. Okay, sure. Uh, in terms of implementation of the regulation, I, I would say the ongoing anti-corruption campaign in China is uh, uh, part of the government efforts to deal with this issue. I also heard of uh, the keywords of overcapacity. I think the most important uh, part uh, of trying to shut down a certain abundant uh, capacity in China they're trying to avoid uh, repeating the same mistake over time. Thank you. Right. I think you had one there, didn't you? So one there, um, there's one there, so that we can move it laterally, and we'll have a last one over there, the guy on the, on the end. There. 
Thank you very much, speakers. Uh, my question is short and simple. That's to Ms. Wu. In how many years' time do you think we can have blue sky in Beijing? Right, okay. And if you hand it to the next one, then. Um, thank you. Um, well, as you mentioned, that, um, that China is going through this uh, huge change, and I think it's a quite ex exciting and interesting period. Um, I'm just uh, wondering that if you can give any tips to, to graduates or to us who want to help China to go through this process, um, just what can we do? Okay, brilliant. Okay, excellent. And the final one over there, I made a mistake of actually getting someone to it. So there's actually the, the, on the end, yes, on the end. I fear this is going to be the last one, actually. Cause we're going yes, to good morning. Um, as some of us know, um, China has the largest shale deposits in the world. So if, and, but yet it's very difficult to extract them. So if there's any technology that can actually efficiently extract them, will this change China's green policy? Okay, right. Why don't we deal with that one first? Mm. And, um, okay, so we'll... we'll Quickly. So, Kevin, you're going to deal with the shale. Uh, uh, sorry, shale gas. Shale gas, I think. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Is, so, if there's if this becomes really extractable, it's uh, the largest resource in the world, perhaps. Uh, is it going to really change things? Yeah, I, I happen to uh, have visited um, both uh, Sinopec's uh, shale gas uh, uh, development in Chongqing and uh, CNPC's similar development in Sichuan. My understanding is uh, shale gas uh, is uh, a quite uh, unique uh, uh, fossil fuel resource uh, because uh, it's very difficult to be uh, extracted cost effectively by uh, large scale uh, corporations because the overhead and the operation cost of this type of com company are relatively high. And also, we need to look at some desirable geographic uh, conditions in order to do it uh, cost-effectively. So that's the problem in China, because uh, the Chinese energy sector is dominated by three national oil companies, uh, Sinopec, uh, CNPC, and Sinoc, maybe sometimes Yantang. Um, so uh, in order to um, uh, tackle this uh, uh, unique resource, I think it's right for the government to rely on uh, national NOCs uh, to uh, first work on this resource. However, but in the longer term, they need a uh, market reform to allow smaller player, medium-sized to smaller-sized uh, enterprise to work on uh, this issue. And also, uh, we, we need to uh, carefully assess the, the geographic conditions of different part of the country, because not uh, uh, every um, uh, rigorous endowment has the potential uh, to be extracted uh, eco uh, economically. Mm -hmm. Right. I, okay. I want to move to blue skies in Beijing. When? 15, yeah, when? It's a huge bet. One billion dollar question, actually. I definitely look forward to the next 15 years, actually, between now and 2030. I think within that 15 years, we have to. Things will be improving gradually, but we have to see clear outcome, actually, no later than 2030. 
graduate school, you do. You are the hope, and the world is yours, actually. And so, so you have to figure out your role. Uh, there are many, many ways you can contribute. <laughs> it's hard to tell. I mean, like, this is not a, a job employment tutoring process. Um, I run something called the Future Academy in China, and but mostly targeting uh, young professionals, young entrepreneurs. And uh, I've been supporting a young man, actually, who's been doing something youth lead that's targeting college students and uh, really started to offering more opportunities, bring students closer to reality because you cannot stay in the classroom actually just imagining your, your role. You have to be ready to the reality. Okay. Yes, yeah, so Kevin, you started by giving job opportunities yeah, in yeah, Beijing. Yeah, yeah already. So, so, so find uh, him. <laughs> actually, I, I would like to quickly respond to the Blue Sky question. Okay. Uh, I, I live in Paris. Uh, sometimes I was still troubled by air quality issues. So Only a couple I, of days. I, yeah, I'm not so optimistic. I, I would say uh, China uh, need uh, to take a pretty long time to help Blue Sky again. I, I would die. And so. only <laughs> if the country can do this in an appropriate manner. If you don't do it uh, in an appropriate manner, it will uh, take even longer time. Okay. I'm uh, hopeful, so. Yeah. Right. I think it's, um, I'm afraid it's time we have to wrap this up, and I'd very much like to thank on your behalf Kevin Tu and Wu Changhua. Thank you very much. Thank you. Sir. Thank you, the speakers. After that intellectually stimulating panel, I'm in need of a brain break, and I think you would like one as well. Okay. So to those who chose the one-child policy panel, that will happen in 10 minutes. Can you please proceed to the adjacent Sheikhside Theatre? And to those who chose uh, the institutional reasons for China slowing down panel, please note that this panel has been uh, changed to a discussion on inequality in China due to Professor Xu Chenggang's sickness. So please make your way out for the lunch session now, and your chosen panel will start at 12.45. Thank you. Uh, wait a moment. I